All right, afternoon. Um, so, I don't know who was here last week. Well, I ought to, because I should remember these things, but I don't remember. But I, it, for those of you who were here last week, you would remember that we looked at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we wrestled with this idea of a kind of radical inclusiveness and the wide embrace of God's love for all people. And I, I say wrestle here intentionally, because we're using this book, which is the book of Acts, um, as our guide through this territory. And it is a beautiful record of how early Christians struggled through this process. So the, the idea of wrestle is right. They struggled through the process of forming a community that was no longer about this single religious and ethnic identity. Instead, they were learning, uh, sometimes slowly, other times rather rapidly, what it might look like to include folks within their worshipping communities whom they had previously and always excluded. Acts gives us an honest account of the way that early Christians found it difficult to love in the way that Christ demanded. So last week, I was I, I think I came up and I said something like, I've been thinking about just how wide the embrace of God's love is. And this week, I've been thinking through something that's a little more close to home for me which is the distance between the things that I believe about God's love and then actually enacting God's love in the lives of others. So for me, this gap, um, and it is a gap sometimes, between my convictions and my day-to-day life has been especially visible in the last few months. So I'm going to share kind of personal stuff and then we'll talk about a passage out of Acts, but it's going to be a bit different from last week. Because I think, as somebody who does a lot of speaking, albeit to um, board university students, I know how easy it is to rest comfortably in a set of nice-sounding, kind of high-minded ideals. And I know how uncomfortable it is to then have those ideals tested. In the last few years, I've been developing a particularly strong conviction around our imprisoned population. I've included you guys in these conversations for a while. Um, thinking that the imprisoned population in Australia deserves to have better access to educational opportunities. And I believe this for a number of reasons, and I don't have enough time to cover them all, and I'm happy to talk to you about them. I, I believe that it's better to dignify men and women in prison rather than humiliate them. I believe it's better to give men and women opportunities to learn rather than to think about punishment as cutting off any opportunity to grow. I believe it's better for our society to have people who are reintroduced into community who have had a chance to rehabilitate since they are our mothers and our fathers and our brothers and sisters and our children. And I believe that, and this one's tricky, I I believe that our obligation to extend a loving embrace includes all people inside of prison walls. So those are convictions, right? Those are things that I have developed over time. And I think I have thoughtful reasons to hold them, and I think I can defend them. And then there's that gap, the gap of action. What do I do about it when push comes to shove? And a few weeks ago, I went into a prison. I went into Parkley Prison. Um, Has anyone here been inside a prison out of curiosity? Um, Yeah, okay. So a prison yard, at least at Parkley, is surprisingly open and clear. It's a male prison, so it's men, and they're pacing back and forth, and they're pacing or running along a short path, 
um, because that's their way of having some exercise. Think about it like going for a walk, except between two razor wire fences. Um, despite being accompanied by a guard, the experience of walking into the prison was a rather startling one initially. There were their men in their prison greens, and they were close. Like, they were closer than you and I. We were making eye contact. We were talking. I was inside their cells as they were showing me what they were working on. Uh, and one of them sat with me during a meeting that I had with the governor and gave me his insights and ideas about an education program that I wanted to convince the prison to run. And I tell you, when I was there initially, I couldn't help but feel those convictions waver a little bit. Standing there in the middle of a prison yard, I looked around me and I saw the people that I defended to folks on the outside. These were my potential students. It was easy to love people at a distance. Um, my initial flutter of anxiousness then felt like a condemnation in my own heart, right? You say you love these people, but look at you. You, you just want to get out of here the first second you try so I want to think about this. I'm going to put that on hold. Because last week I went line by line through this story about the Ethiopian eunuch. And the beautiful conclusion to that story is that question, why not? You remember that? This resounding question. What is stopping us from loving people whom we might consider outliers or outsiders from God's grace? And then I thought, what's stopping me from including these men within my community? What barrier is there to God's love being shared and known? And I have to say that the answer to those questions is all about the direction of the question. If I direct it to God, I think that the answer is just nothing. Nothing is getting in your way. But if I direct those questions to myself, uh, the, the answer changes. What is stopping me from loving these men? Um, what, it, what barrier is there between my conviction and then the reality of how those convictions might actually lead me to act? Ah, I think the simplest answer for me is fear. And maybe you can insert your own group of people or, or, or folks in your own life. But fear at the cost of loving unlovely people, that would be one. Or fear of how I will be perceived, right, by them and by others. Fear that I'm wrong. Actually, maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe there are some people who I shouldn't love. Fear that I'm hurting other people um, in, in loving these people. That, you know, it's kind of a zero-sum game. Somebody's going to lose. Fear that I'm not up to the task, right? I think that I can, but I can't really. Fear uh, because it's actually scary to love some people who look the way that they do uh, because they seem on the outside to be worthy of a bit of fear. Fear because I don't have any good examples in my own life of what it looks like to go into a prison and love someone. And maybe then I'm going to be on the outside of my own community. Because if nobody else is doing it, then I'm a weirdo. Fear that I'll lose friends. Fear that I'll gain friends who don't really fit comfortably into my life. Uh, and who I'd rather keep at an arm's distance. Got to tell you, the early church was learning a very similar lesson in Acts. The barriers that they had constructed and trusted to know who was in and who was out. They could just see someone and just know. Uh, they broke down in light of Jesus. All of the conventions and all of the laws and all of the rules that prohibited them 
from loving an outsider. Um, And you might call that all the excuses, right? Because they were good excuses. They were undone in the life and death of Jesus. I've lost my excuses. The barrier between God's love and my neighbor is now me. Because God's quite happy to extend his love to them. If, If God isn't stopping us from loving the outsider, then it's, I think it's us who are getting in the way, or at least it's our fear. So Acts 10 and Acts 11 tells the story of Cornelius. So if, if you were um, reading on the Dive In Facebook group that Ainsley started, you'll know that I started and stopped writing a sermon on another passage. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to go back to it. And, and even this one is only half a sermon. But I'm going to talk a little bit about Cornelius in light of this struggle that I'm having between what I believe and how I want to actually act when push comes to shove. And Cornelius was a Roman centurion who um, becomes a baptized believer in the early church. The story is a much longer one than the story of the eunuch, um, so I'm not going to go through it line by line. I'm going to kind of put it on hold and say at some point in the future I'm going to do another one. Uh, This is part one, right, of a future sermon. Uh, For my purposes today, I'm just going to emphasize a bit of the story that reveals the difficulty of changing our minds about people who used to be on the outside. And also, hopefully, to remind us that God is is doing his work of radical love, whether we want to get involved or not. The story of Cornelius is a central story for the early church. It's the pivotal story, I would say. While the, conversation, uh, while the conversion of the eunuch showed that even a foreigner might become baptized, the conversion of Cornelius was not just Cornelius, it was a whole crowd of Gentiles. And it was a final confirmation that this isn't just a series of one-off little conversions that are going on. Some people call this the Gentile Pentecost, which I think is a lovely way of thinking of it. People are gathered, the Holy Spirit comes, Gentiles start speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter and the believers are astonished and they, they baptize them. From this point, there is no doubt in the early church, or there is a little bit. There can be little doubt in the early church that among believers, the good news is for everyone. I, I'd love to touch on just a few moments in this story. And my prayer is that it might build on what we discussed last week, right? The loving embrace of God is wide. And so the second part is our loving embrace, or to mirror that. So if you want, um, this is from Acts 10. You can look on your phones, you can have a physical Bible, or you can just listen to me. I'm reading now from Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So that's verses 1 to 8. It is of enormous importance to Luke 
Um, and Luke is the writer of Luke and Acts, or at least the person that we call Luke. And he wants to stress that the movement of a ministry to the Gentiles comes directly from God. Acts is full of visions and messages, right? We had one of those last week. We had three of those last week. But visions and messages who are divine and human, and God uses them to confront, to convict, to convince, and even sometimes to convert in the case of Saul. Um, People like Cornelius. God's plan of salvation is being worked out for all people. And the humans in these stories are just kind of asked to respond to what God is already doing. In our story, Cornelius encounters an angel, and he's obedient immediately. But it's God who sets the action in motion. It's God whose plan for love has extended even to this Roman military officer, whom Jews would have called a pagan. And we have this word God-fearing. If you remember this from last week, what's important about God-fearers for Luke is that these people are a bridge between Judaism and Christianity. Indeed, if you listen to that, I don't know if you hear these things like I do, but he sort of sounds like a Jew, right? Cornelius is devout. He prays to the God of the Jews. He gives alms to the poor. For Jewish listeners, they couldn't help but hear this story and recognize a a pious person, a holy person. Even someone so culturally remote is immediately familiar. And this is God's love, right? God's love which radically shrinks the difference between us and others. Now, I have to say, Cornelius is not your everyday God-fearer, right? He's a centurion. Uh, He's a person of rank. He's probably a Roman citizen. He's stationed in Caesarea. And I think it's interesting to point out here that Luke goes out of his way to talk about Romans, right? If you think about the story of Jesus and the centurion back in the early part of Luke, Luke shows that neither Jesus nor his followers were antagonistic toward the Roman presence in the East. Um, And in fact, he talks about Roman soldiers who wanted to join this movement. I don't have enough time to go through every thought that I have about this, but I think, just think of this. Luke doesn't exclude the powerful from Christianity, right? What he does stress, however, is that worldly power pales under the light of Christ's call to believers. Okay, this is the next bit of the story, Acts 10, 9 to 16. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. There's weird details like this all the way through Luke. I don't know if you noticed the tanner who lived by the sea part in the last bit, but anyway, he's a, he, he likes to, he's an historian. Um, incidentally, tanners live by the sea because they need salt water. Um, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Uh, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. So this is a narrative shift, and this happens the whole way through this story. Centurion, Peter, Centurion, Peter, until they finally come together and they share their stories. You two? 
And when the narrative shifts to Peter, we find him praying on a roof, right, at noon. And his vision is strange. It's a large sheet. It's full of creatures that have descended from heaven. But Luke makes it clear throughout this story that Peter sees a danger of contamination, right? It's the possibility that these animals are going to contaminate one another. Peter will later realize that this vision is not about animals at all. It's about human beings. And it's about our obligation to be in community with people who we previously excluded. But what is interesting in this part of the story for me is the fact that Peter refuses. Did you notice that when he says, surely not? And also what God answers. Verse 14, that that bit where it says, surely not, is actually really emphatic. It means no. It means no way. By no means, absolutely not. I think this is the first example for me of the gap between faith and action. In answer to the why not, right, from last week, Peter responds, you can't be serious, right? Not this. We know in here that it's not about eating unclean animals. And the story makes it clear that Peter's denial is actually an image of his own community's denial. To include the unclean. And I think it's a a beautiful echo, right? Did you notice how many times he says, surely not? Three times? Luke is intentionally echoing Peter's initial denial of Christ. He refuses the voice of God three times. To me, it sounds something like this. What is the effect of Christ's death on who is in and who is out? And then God says, that person. And Peter says, surely not. Those people, surely not. Even them, surely not. And then what does God say in response? Do not call anything or anyone impure that God has made clean. Do not put limits on the extent of my love. This is from Acts 10, 27 to 36, a little bit later in the story. And this is the last bit that I'll talk about. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Him is Cornelius. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then Cornelius answered. And this is this lovely moment where they both share their dreams. Cornelius says, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon, the tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. I love this, and I'm going to get back to this, but notice that Peter did not realize that that is why he was there. Um, but then Peter begins to speak. In, in the Greek, it actually says that he opened his mouth, which is this moment for a rabbi to sort of begin teaching. He says this, very famous words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
Um, and then part two would be talking more about the sermon that he gives, but this is part one. This passage continues on into Acts 11, in fact, but I wanted to end in the middle of the story for a few reasons. So just before what I read you, Peter has invited the messengers from Cornelius into the house where he's staying, into the Tanner's house. And I don't know about you, but this is a moment where Peter has already kind of unintentionally started breaking his own rules, right? Because he's invited these Gentiles to stay with him while he gets over a vision. Peter invites them to stay despite the Jewish fear around inviting Gentiles into your home, which could lead to contamination. But it's actually at this moment, it's when Cornelius meets Peter in his own home, in Cornelius' home. This is the moment where you see conviction tested against reality. This is where you get to see love played out in action. Now, I don't know about you or how many of you have spent time going into a home that is kept kosher, but for a first century Jew, while they might be happy to invite a Gentile into their home, because they can do all of the appropriate um, preparations to keep food and the home kosher, for a Jew to go into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, that is threatening. Indeed, what Peter says right at the beginning, did you catch that? says to everyone, you're very well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile, which is a funny thing to say when you're invited into someone's home. You know it's illegal for me to be here. In this instance, it's not just Cornelius. Um, Without Peter knowing, Cornelius has assembled a whole group of people in his house, not just relatives and household members, but his intimate friends. I read this, and maybe this is just me, but I get a sense that Peter is kind of caught off guard. Nobody forewarned him that this was going to be a whole thing. The crowd is an essential detail, because this is moving us away from a one-on-one private meeting, like with the eunuch, to a story about the gospel being preached to a whole group of Gentiles. This is a story about a, a massive turning point in the church at Caesarea. Because of two visions... Because of God's leading, Peter is forced to come face to face with a group of Gentiles. He goes into the home despite the dangers. And his convictions have been rattled by his vision. And now immediately they're being tested, right? Peter realizes in that moment, ah, that vision was not about animals. And instead he says this, I shouldn't be here, but I'm just realizing God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. There's a a small detail in this story that I love. Um, God doesn't just talk to Peter. Did you get what happens with Cornelius? Cornelius tells Peter why he's there. He says, oh, we're all gathered. Now you can, uh, we're all gathered here in the presence of the Lord. And we're here to listen to everything that the Lord is going to say through you. I really love this. I would hate this to happen to me. (laughs) Um, I am so confident that I am in control of my own life, but God has ways, doesn't he, of reminding you, oh, by the way, you're here for a totally different reason that you didn't even realize. Uh, I wonder whether Peter had that, wait, what, kind of reaction. Um, God had told Cornelius, but he hadn't told Peter uh, that Peter was going to address all the folks gathered. And then they all just wait to hear what he's going to say. And Peter finds himself in the very unenviable position of trying to teach something that he has just learned. Because the rules have changed. His conviction to trust God has led to a brand new understanding that no one is unclean. 
And immediately God says, okay, put your faith into action. Go into a room of unclean people who aren't unclean. Come inside, preach to them. And so he does. And this is the point where Peter utters those famous words of scripture. I realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. And here Peter is making something clear. I feel like he's sort of figuring it out in real time. Do you get how he phrases that? I realize now that God does not show favoritism. God is impartial when it comes to us. We're the ones that judge one another. But as another piece of scripture reminds us, God sees the heart. His judgment is fair. He invites us as we are, right? He invites us as we are. He's not swayed by those differences that seem so important to us. And since we're his children, we should be a little more like that. Peter's sermon, um, just so you know, gets interrupted. The Holy Spirit comes, falls on the listeners. His message, which was really ramping up, gets cut short and they start speaking in tongues and they praise God. And um, He uses those same words, why shouldn't we baptize them? Everything else seems clear. It's a fundamental turning point for the early church. And they marvel that God has offered the same love that they received at Pentecost to a rabble of Gentiles. But before all of this, Peter has that mini revelation, right? I now realize something. How true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. And this is where I go back to my thoughts about the prison. God doesn't put any stock in outside appearance. He's not impressed by labels. He doesn't care about our categories. Peter has this realization, maybe for the first time ever, of what Christ's death really means, right? What it really means for the growth of the kingdom. All of these people here are part of it. The peace that those angels declared that he writes about, right, at the beginning of Luke. You remember what peace on earth to all men, right? These people are part of it. That peace really was for all people. Peace on earth means peace on all the earth. Not peace for Israel, peace for men and women, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And when I stood in that prison yard, after my moment of hesitation, I I think I had a similar revelation, which was to say, oh, this is what it's about. I don't know if that's happened for you as well, that moment of a test of conviction. The love of the gospel The all-embracing, you know, ever-extending, unstoppable, inexhaustible love of God. That's meant for these kinds of people. It's meant to reach even here. To break into the walls of men and women's hearts. People that we've caged and separated from community, even there. I'm called to love them in the messiness of their actual lives. That is my conviction, turning into something like action. Or maybe just the revelation that comes before I do something. So for us at H3O, I guess my prayer is that we would see our convictions, the things that we profess and believe and claim and exclaim, put into action. That we would not simply be comfortable in the knowledge of God's love, but that we would share it. Even, as Peter has learned, to people that maybe we have reviled or feared or excluded. And I I didn't know that this was going to happen, but Ains has got this map up here, as you can see. 
And I was going to ask a question, but I'm realizing now that there's a really practical way of doing this. Because I would love to ask this question in your own life. What are some practical ways that you can shrink that gap between what you believe and profess and how you actually want to live and love like Christ? And when we had this activity up, um, Ains had us place little stickers on the parts of Sydney where we are. And I would love to extend this, this invite to us again. I have a new sticker. We've moved. Um, but I would love to reframe it a tiny bit. And I would love for you to put a sticker, maybe not necessarily where you are, um, but for I want you to think about who are the people that I want to love, or maybe who are the people that I struggle to love and I would love to love better. Now, that's not to say that we all put stickers like as far away from where we live as possible. In the right, in the shine. <laughs> um, I had some other ideas that I won't voice because I'm being recorded. Um, but instead, think about people that you know, or people that you hope to know, or people that you avoid, people that you hope not to avoid much longer. And I want you to use this as an opportunity to reflect on the ways that the love that God has for his people is not impeded by us, right? What it looks like for us instead to turn our eyes to him and say, who is it that you call me to love? Because no one is unclean. And if you would like then, either to take this as an opportunity to do some personal reflection um, on that revelation of Peter, what does it look like to love those who you had previously reviled or excluded? Or maybe if you're more of an outward processor like I am, to find someone to talk to about it, right? Because what we do here in community is not just love one another, but we help one another promote and produce love in the world. Um, Because this isn't a place of judgment, it's actually a place where we remember that we are free of judgment so that we're free to love.